The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. This last uh, four weeks uh, we've been starting over. Um, usually we do this in September. And the way this month, this last month in September, we've been starting over is to reflect on our practice, our interest in working with the mind and understanding these teachings from the Buddha, to look at it in a very pragmatic way. Like, why are we interested in doing this work that we do here? And um, over the last several weeks, I've, I've kind of followed my own logic that probably is similar to everybody else's, which is somewhere along the line, just working with our own mind, we have stumbled upon, I think, as a really important insight, which is the suffering that we have in life, the feeling of being burdened. Even though it's related to outside events, what somebody said to us, what's happening around us, but what we bump up against, see more and more clearly in life, is the suffering we experience is happening here. When we're upset, when we're feeling depressed, when we're feeling cynical, when we're caught up in a lot of neediness or a lot of lust, being bored, you know, all the different afflictive states that we have in life, where is that actual activity of suffering? It's right here in the mind and body, right? Where else could it be? Now, conventionally speaking, we locate it somewhere else. I'm upset because there's traffic, or I'm upset because winter's coming. or And it's almost like, in almost a magical way, we forget that the being upset is something that's happening right here in the mind, the heart, the body. It's not the cold weather that's the suffering. That doesn't mean it isn't cold. It just means the suffering is here. It's always here. And this is a, I mean, it's not a one-time insight, but it's an insight we need to bump up against over and over again. Because it changes how we, what we do about suffering, what we do about stress and being tight and being fearful and being restless and being needy. It changes that. because. Once we realize that the pain is here, the weight is here, then we're more inclined to begin to address it here instead of constantly trying to fix our partners or fix the world. Or, and I'm not saying that that stuff isn't sometimes useful. But if that's all we do is work on our partners, work on our bodies, work on the world, we miss the the place that actually can have a profound effect. So that was the first thing we talked about three or four weeks ago, this, this experience of locating the problem here, in the moment, in this body-mind process, whatever you want to call that. The suffering that we experience, any kind of you know, dissatisfaction or restless uneasiness, it's here. And just kind of owning that. <laughs> Sorry about that. So it's here. And then the question, you know, the obvious question is, well, what is it that's here? What is that experience of being uneasy or being burdened or being tight, being fearful? What is it? So we're, instead of just like making it into a noun, you know, this is pain. This is suffering. We're really trying to look at it as a process, like what is happening? What is the heart, mind, body doing that's causing this feeling of being burdened or heavy? So we're looking for the activity itself. It's an investigation or a willingness to open to the experience of suffering. And we see, oh, there's an identification going on. The mind is identifying with something, attaching, clinging, grasping. There's an actual activity 
And when that activity is there, there is the experience of contraction or suffering. When the, that activity isn't active, isn't happening, then there's no problem. So we're correlating the activity, like what the mind-heart-body is doing with the experience of dukkha or suffering or stress or tension. So not only is it located here, but moment by moment, if we're going to be a suffering human being, we've got to be doing something. It's not, it's not like that's just who we are, we're a suffering human being. We can only be a suffering human being if we're doing something. So this is like um, a proposal to check out. Is that actually true? Like, do you have to do something to be a suffering human being, a tight human being, a fright, uh, fearful human being? Does your mind, body, heart, this process right here, does it have to be engaged in some activity in order to experience dukkha? And if you find, like I found, and you know, all of us, I think, eventually find that, yes, there has to be an activity, then it gets very interesting. Like, well, what is that activity? And what is the cause of that activity? Like, why the heck are we doing that? <laughs> you know, if it actually leads to suffering, to tightness, to stress, why would a sane person engage that activity? Why would a sane person grasp or cling or attach or identify with the flow of experience? And what the Buddha points out is that human beings do this because we see things in a particular way, a diluted way, and, and seeing things in a particular way, this self-centered, diluted way, it makes sense. It seemingly makes sense to cling, to grasp, to identify, to attach, to struggle with things that, with things as they actually are. I mean, we know this. We've all learned this. We just aren't necessarily very conscious of this lesson that we've learned, but We've all learned in different places in our lives how insane it is to be tight when it's not helping. But this lesson is just taking it to the end, or this teaching is taking it to the nth degree. It's never sane to be tight. It's never sane to layer on unnecessary tension in the mind and body. Whether it's laying down unnecessary tension because we're kind of whipping up a sense of craving or neediness or lust or whipping up fear, anger, resentment, hatred, boredom, irritation. But it's this layering on, this unnecessary activity that we call attaching, identifying, clinging, grasping. When we see that, we see it's unnecessary. But the point of view, the kind of casual, conventional point of view we're living with doesn't seem insane. Like when somebody hurts us, insults us, for example, it feels appropriate. It seems rational to get upset and to be spinning in our mind about like either, you know, why am I so bad? You know, or why is that person so bad? It just seems appropriate. And it seems appropriate, the Buddha says, because we're seeing things with a particular point of view. And the simplest way to say that is we're seeing things from a self-centered point of view. We're taking everything personally. Every experience we have, and especially we take personally experience that has a charge to it. So this is the sort of feedback loop that once we give something a charge because you know of this, our conditioning, then it seems even more personal. And taking it personally itself reinforces the charge. And then we take it personally. You see, it has its own life all of a sudden. We take it personally. The taking it personally is that tension, is that tightness, is that weight we feel in the body and mind and heart. And then that weight sort of uh, is the impetus, is the, char is the stimulus for the next remembering that view. Oh, yeah, this is personal because I'm feeling it. So of course it's personal. So we take it personally again. It's like taking it personally is like we squeeze the heart. One teacher called it that. That's the squeeze in the heart. Oh, yeah, it hurts. So we squeeze the heart. Oh, yeah, it hurts. And, and we just keep doing that. 
And it's the same thing with desire. You know, oh, I really want it. And you squeeze the heart. Oh, yeah, I must really want it because my heart really feels tight. You squeeze it again. So desire, craving, fear, resentment, irritation, denial, distraction, all of these different kinds of afflictive states or some variation of the mind out of habit squeezing itself, you know, or the heart out of habit squeezing itself, and then the mind, because of that squeeze, because of the tension of that squeeze, thinking, this is important, this is about me, this is relevant to me. And that kind of thinking, the taking it personally, is just more of the squeezing. And it sets in motion this self-centered drama stuff. What, you know, in Buddhism we call it delusion. Seeing things with wrong view, taking things personally. So then the question is, and we talked about this last week, why do we take things personally? Why are we misperceiving the way things are? How come we don't see things as they actually are? I mean, maybe things are personal. Maybe that's why we see it personally. Maybe they actually are personal. And what the Buddha suggests is, well, we take it personally because we're not paying attention. We're not, we haven't taken the time to cultivate clear seeing. The, the mind, a balanced mind that can see things as they actually are. So basically, our culture is sort of like this uh, computer virus. So every time there's a newborn baby, we infect the baby with this virus, this sort of self-centered way of viewing and living life. And then it just becomes the way of being. And it then never gets questioned. And the whole way of, you know, living that way, like I've been talking about, is sort of afflictive. It creates a lot of tension, a lot of dissonance. Because taking things personally, taking this kind of life personally is a real setup. I mean, because here we are as vulnerable beings, born and then die, vulnerable to illness, to loss. So many things are uncertain in our lives. And we're taking it all very personally. I mean, that's a big setup for stress, right? And so then what do we do? Well, we seek out distraction to modify the uncertainty and the vulnerability. All kinds of distractions. You know, relationships can be distractions. TV, media can be distractions. I remember the scene from Annie Hall where Woody Allen is pacing back and forth wondering who really shot John F. Kennedy. And Annie Hall turns to him and says, I think you're just trying to avoid our relationship, or something like that. He looks at the camera and says, I think she's right. <laughs> so all of these different obsessions, you know, it's just like a way of avoiding the pain that we experience, it's the weight that we experience. So we have this predicament of misperceiving. And then the Buddha said, well, there's something we can do about it. Like if, if the basic problem in life which sets in motion these cycles of creating stress and then the stress itself setting in motion more stress and then the stress itself setting in motion more stress, if this is our predicament and it's arising because we're not seeing clearly, well, it's so obvious what the solution is. We cultivate the, the ability, the talent or the muscles of seeing clearly. So what do we need, what does a human being need to see things clearly, to see things as they actually are? So if we're seeing things, taking things personally because we're not paying close enough attention, not bringing kind of a fresh, open, clear attention to the moment, then what can we do to the mind that will make it easier not to be caught by our preconceived ideas but to see things as they are. But we need to be awake or alert, interested, right? But that interest can't come out of a self-centered point of view. It has to be interest or alertness or brightness for its own sake. It's like, uh, you could even say it's like a devotion to truth. I know it sounds a little heady, but in a really direct way, the mind 
uh, finds this value. There's a value in seeing things as they are for its own sake. Just like I mentioned at the beginning of the sit, we can have, we can remember this value of simplicity. Well, one of the aspects of simplicity is the truth-seeking mind. The mind that doesn't want to take things a particular way just because that's its habit, but wants to see clearly what's really being felt. What is this experience of pain in the knee? What is this feeling of sadness? What is this experience of coolness? What is the experience of a thought arising in the mind? You know, I mean, this is such an obvious example of how deluded we are. How many times has a thought arisen in our minds? But how often have we actually been interested in that phenomenon of a thought arising in the mind without being confused by the content? So we're not interested in the particular content of the thought that's arising in the mind. But that actual phenomena of thought arising in a mind, what is that experience? What is that thought? Not as the content, but as that mental event of something that wasn't there, now is there, and now isn't there. I mean, this is like so central to our lived experience, but how many of us, how much of the time, have actually been interested, alert, to the phenomena, phenomenon of thoughts arising and then ceasing in the mind. Like what that is. What is that, what is that process or that experience as a lived experience? Not philosophically, what is it? Not in terms of neuroscience, um, what is it? But from a subjective point of view, this person aware of this you know, mind process now what is that experience? So this is what I mean by alertness, you know, bringing a real interest to the mind-body experience, moment by moment. That would help us go beyond our habits of misperceiving. Now, another related talent we need to cultivate is alertness or that brightness, that interest of mind isn't enough we have to strengthen relaxation, a kind of trust or allowing. Because what that relaxation does is it teases out any expectation or any agenda from the interest, from the clear scene. So we need both of these qualities working together. Even the charge, even like the desire to realize freedom, to see things as they are, gets in the way of seeing things as they are. I know it sounds sort of paradoxical, like we have to be really interested, but relaxed. And we think, well, I can't be both interested and relaxed. (laughs) I can be relaxed and sliding into tranquility and unconsciousness, you know? Or I can be alert and hypervigilant and tight and striving and getting, you know, fixing, doing, but I can't do these both at the same time. But we can. You know, it's that's why it's a practice. That's why it's really hard work. It's really simple. You know, being interested is not a complicated state of mind, and being relaxed is not a complicated state of mind. But to develop these two capacities, these two mental qualities, to the nth degree in balance with one another, well, that that takes some practice. It's, uh, we have to overcome a lot of things. We have to overcome the habit of having being tight when we're interested. Like, did you notice tonight when you paid attention to the breath? It's not easy to pay attention to the breath without creating some subtle or not so subtle tension in the mind. Oh, I'm here paying attention to the breath. That view, you know, Mark wants me to pay attention to the breath, or the Buddha says pay attention to the breath. Just that thought itself is a kind of tension. And it gets in the way of being aware of the breath. So it has to be somehow the mind has to be reminded to relax, to relax, to relax. But relaxing isn't going unconscious. And this is the interesting thing. The neat thing about what we learn from uh, this trust or this relaxation 
is we learn that awareness doesn't take effort. It's an amazing insight to see that. Like, now, doesn't it seem like you, you know, not Mark or Todd or somebody is doing the awareness. Somebody is paying attention. We just kind of, this is one of those assumptions or those preconceived ideas that we keep projecting. But actually, try to shut off awareness right now. Just try not to be aware. You know, there's no off switch. And if it was really something we had to do, you know, I have to be aware, that sort of tension that goes with this idea of me being vigilantly aware, awake. I don't want to miss it. I want to see the truth. That's the extra part. There's somehow this notion that we have to do awareness. I have to do it. And if it's bad, then it's my fault. So part of this, um, this balance, you know, as we develop the skill and alertness, brightness, interest, and develop the skill and relaxation, what we're discovering actually is, some teachers call this the natural mind. We're discovering a natural balance, a natural brightness, a natural awareness. And this, is, this natural awareness has no inherent tension. In a way, you know, from, from a, maybe it's a little provocative to say it this way, but in a way, as an ego being, which we're all, you know, to some degree quite established in, the sense of being me doing this life, right? In a very real sense, the only thing the ego can do, it only has one move, which is this. You know, energetically, mentally, physically, it does one thing. It does this. It tightens. That's the only thing the ego really does. It just tightens up. And then that, that ability, you know, that sort of movement, that you could call it like a kind of internal friction that, that we somehow magically, cleverly <laughs> figured out how to do, right? It's very confusing because that basic move of tightening combined with the complexity of language that allows us to conceive of something apart from the whole, then we can start associating the concept of me in this world with that tightness, right? And then the self is born, so to speak, you know? The combination of creating mental friction tightness, or what we call dukkha, suffering, and the, the capacity we have to conceptualize, to create ideas and then be confused by them, creates a lot of problems. So as we develop the alertness and the relaxation, and we make it a formal part of our life, we have our formal sit where we're cultivating these mental qualities, and then throughout the day we're cultivating releasing and relaxing and trusting and allowing things to be the way they are. And we're cultivating alertness and continuity of mindfulness and interest and truth-seeking and uh, sort of the opposite of superficiality. Um, and, and kind of a wholesome part of interest, part of this alertness, is a wholesome fear or concern of our mind's capacity to do things out of habit, to do things with preconceived ideas, to be caught or lost or confused by our preconceived ideas. We need that sort of fear to some degree in order to, that's part of the truth-seeking or the interest. But at the same time, we're cultivating the experience of release, that there doesn't need to be anybody doing anything, that being interested doesn't have to be a self-centered trip. Otherwise, our alertness is just an extension of the ego. It's just another ego projection. I'm the guy being really alert. I'm the guy trying to really see things clearly. I'm the guy who's going to become enlightened. I'm the guy who's currently a suffering human being. But someday, when I get my act together, I'm going to be fully enlightened. You know? I mean, that's a really heavy trip to live that way. And then, we, then every time, you know, we eat ice cream or we want to watch a stupid TV show, we then hate ourselves because it doesn't fit this kind of ideal we have. 
And it's just like that self-torture just spins and spins and spins. So remember that um, both the alertness, even though initially, you know, just start experimenting with being alert and being awake and being interested and experiment with being released and allowing and surrendering and relaxing, even if it feels a bit like a self-centered trip. Because as we just start playing with it, we'll just learn, like, how to do it better. You know, just like somebody learning carpentry or somebody learning, you know, to play the guitar. At first, it's a real mess. You know, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't look good. But we get better at it. So the key is just to know what direction to move in. We're moving in the direction of alertness, wakefulness, that continuity of attention, that wholesome concern, like uh, an appropriate fear for superficiality. Or rushing is a kind of superficiality. You know, the idea that we're rushing to get somewhere, to become somebody. And it's like a, a sort of deluded notion that this life that's being lived right now isn't important. But the life, the life I imagine I'm going to live later, that's important. That's worth rushing to. But somehow this life that's being lived right now is irrelevant. You know, and it's appropriate to dismiss it, to be distracted, to not be awake. So as we cultivate, as we experiment with wakefulness, with interest, we'll see more and more that it's natural. It doesn't need an ego stance. We don't need an ego presence, a self-centered presence to be interested. Just like we don't need a self-centered presence, contraction, to be relaxed or to be released. So this is the amazing thing about developing these two qualities, or together we call this samadhi. A lot of you have heard this word before. It's a Pali word, also the same in Sanskrit. That means concentration. It's not a great translation for it. Unification of mind, the mind coming together in a balanced way, instead of a scattered, fragmented mind. It's a mind that's come together. It's an inclusive attention. So it's different than what we would normally, in Buddhism, call unwholesome attention, where you know, we're striving you know, like a, a burglar trying to sneak into a house and steal something. There's a certain kind of concentration in that person's mind. But we wouldn't call it a wholesome concentration because it's driven by greed or driven by fear. So there's, there's a kind of a splitting apart going on. I'm really concentrated here. So I can become somebody over here, you know, the person who has the jewelry or something. But the kind of concentration we're developing has this element, this other quality of total release. So that's a real unification or the, the flavor of it is a wholeness or a fullness of the mind and body. And we actually experience it as a kind of healing. So, you know, you come back, you come in from your fragmented day, the mind's scattered, you're worried about this, you're hopeful about something else, your mind's been twisted in all kinds of ways during the day, discombobulated, and we sit down on our cushion at the end of the day, or we lie down, or we find some appropriate meditative pose, and we engage our practice, which is to cultivate a simple, clear presence, maybe with the breath as a particular technique, and to really relax, to really surrender into that clear scene of the breath, not to need anything extra, just knowing the in-breath, knowing the out-breath, knowing when the mind wanders, knowing when the mind returns, knowing the in-breath, knowing the out-breath. And there's a healing that happens, that fragmentation the exhaustion that comes from the mind being scattered and fragmented and this and then that and then that and then that, all of that begins to heal. It's literally the energy of the mind is coming together. And it's like, uh, um, it's like you know, one of the images that's used is like a laser. But 
as the mind, the scattered mind, comes together, its, its natural wholeness is recreated. It's like, and I think there's even a law in physics, you know, that says something. There's no way to actually get rid of energy. It's just transformed. You know, you got energy here, you got energy there. You do things to the energy, and it changes the energy. But there's no way to actually get rid of any energy in a closed system. And it's the same with the mind. You know, the mind as this mind-body process, it's just energy. And so when our mind is scattered, discombobulated, it's just, you know, it's just energy in a maybe incoherent or discordant patterns, you know, movements. It's not pretty to look at. And then when we stop doing whatever the activity that stimulates that agitation, that, that sort of chaos, when that activity is stopped, then the mind comes back to its coherence, to its integrity, to its wholeness. It just does it. It's not personal. It just happens. And then the wonderful thing about that samadhi, that unification of mind then, is we can put it to work. Because that kind of mind, that balanced mind, sees things as they are. This is what the Buddha says is the proximate cause for insight. So if we want to transform our lives, transform how we are in life, how we relate, how we relate to our intimate partners, how we relate to our jobs, how we relate to the natural insecurity of aging and money and people liking us and power. If we want to transform that so we live in a more easeful, loving, wise way, we have to heal the mind and then with that balanced mind. Now, the habits of the mind haven't changed. They've just been suppressed. Right? Because now the mind is collected. It's basically the mind is feeling, you could say, the joy of non-agitation. And, and in a way, at first you may pay attention to the breath, but really what that concentration is, is the mind is appreciating its non-agitation, or the mind is appreciating its own fullness, its own peace. That's the actual object in meditation. Although we start by, you know, using loving kindness phrases or using the breath or using sound or using sensations of the body. Once the practice develops, the real object of meditation is bliss, is happiness, is peace, is that experience of unification. And then the mind uses that balance, that bliss, to see clearly because the conditioning is suppressed. It, isn't, it hasn't been uprooted from the mind. So inevitably, it's going to arise, even in the relatively calm, peaceful states. A memory will come up. Or we'll notice the knee hurts after sitting for 30 minutes or 45 minutes, you know, or five minutes. So then the knee hurts, you know. And then that pain in the knee triggers a kind of deep, primitive fear, like, well, if it hurts this much now, it's going to hurt a lot later. I better fix it or something like that. So that's like self-centered drama. But now the drama, that mental event, is arising with a balanced mind, a whole mind, a peaceful mind. So then the mind can see what that thought is, actually. It isn't going to be confused by the charge the emotional charge and the content of the thought. Oh, it's just sensation. It's just a thought. And if, if there is an emotion like fear, it's just fear. But see, the balance gives the mind a kind of integrity so that it can actually see things without being confused by them. Because that's actually what we need to be a wise, loving, skillful human being. We need a perspective. We need a way to relate to loss, to relate to success, to relate to disappointment, to relate to pain, to relate to death, to relate to birth. 
We need a perspective to relate to all those ordinary, inevitable parts of life that's not going to be confused by it. So something wonderful happens to us, but the mind isn't confused. It has this inner integrity, you know, what we call samadhi or peace. And the peace allows us to see the success in an impersonal way or to see the suffering, the, law, the pain of loss, I should say, or the pain of you know, physical pain, we stub our toe, but to see it in an impersonal way. Oh, it's just this. It's just this. And it's not about being flat or disconnected, which I know it sounds a little bit like that. It's actually a more intimate way of being. So this is the balance that we're going to be working on, you know, those of us who have been practicing, practicing for a while. We have been working on, those of you who are new, it's really meant to get inspired by this, you know, developing the one thing that can help our mind go beyond the habit of misperceiving. And because of the misperceiving, we react, we get tight. And that tightness simply sets in motion more tightness makes it easier to get more tight, more reactive, more clingy, graspy, attachy, <laughs> identifying me. <laughs> so that's, that's just more suffering. So I'll leave it here. Next week, we'll pick it up again. I'll talk more in terms of like techniques that support samadhi, this alertness, interest, this relaxation. But in the meantime, just work with your mindfulness of breathing or whatever you've been working with. But use the technique that you've been working with in light of developing alertness, interest, and seeing how that can be effortless. The clear interest can be effortless. And the relaxation, the trusting, the allowing can also be effortless or nobody doing it. So instead of like, I'm trying to make my mind like this perfect mind out there, it's really much more about teasing out what's in the way of relaxation, what's in the way of being interested. Because it's like you can begin by just imagining that the mind is naturally capable of seeing things as they are. Like a mirror is naturally capable, not only capable, it's incredibly effective at reflecting back what's in front of it perfectly, right? I mean, a good mirror, at least. And it's totally relaxed in doing that. <laughs> it doesn't need to expend any personal energy to reflect back what's going on in front of it. So this is a simile for the mind. There's this natural capacity to be relaxed, to be free of that personal effort, and to be clear, to see clearly how it is. And that's what we're discovering. With whatever meditation technique you use, that's really the purpose, is to find that balance, that natural mind. But I'll leave it here. We have about 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from both our experienced community members and also new folks, questions you have about the talk, experiences you've had formally in your meditation practice, informally during your daily life that seem relevant that you'd like to bring up and share with the group. So what comes to mind? Yeah, say, me, say your name, please. I'm April. Um, and I was wondering for uh, So this weekend, I found, um, OK, so I'll just give you a little story. I was supposed to go on this date. Thank <laughs> you.
Yeah. Like, it was just this revelation of, like, um, because I separated myself from Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And and it, not only is that moment beautiful, but to some degree, the insight, that understanding that arose in your mind at that time, it it uh, it's, it's left an indelible imprint on the mind. Your mind will never be the same. And if you have that experience again and again and again, each time the imprint, the the transformation goes a little deeper. Because the mind, the, the neat thing about the mind, because the mind is naturally whole and integrated, insight naturally integrates, it generalizes. So what you came to understand there about the, uh, that the, you don't need to take it personally, it's going to be easier than in other experiences that have nothing to, that aren't going to be like this particular experience, like a different context, but the same uh, kind of wise impulse is more likely to arise, like not having to take it personally, you know, and not just negative, like painful experiences, but pleasant experiences, like somebody does show up and really likes you, you know, and not to take that personally either, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't mean it isn't pleasant, you're just not taking the pleasantness personally. You're not like adding something extra to the pleasantness of being there and being loved or being liked. <laughs> yeah, Brenda. Um, I've been practicing for quite a while, and kind of just to go on what you said, um, today I was restoring my iTunes, and I accidentally pushed, uh, or I don't know what I was doing, I was trying to update it, and I accidentally did restore it back to 2008. <laughs> I feel like I lost all my music, and I was just like, my first thing is like I wanted to cry. I like really wanted to. I've been really sick for like about a month and a half, and so my resistance is really low. I still wanted to cry, and I just couldn't. I was just like, it'll be alright. I'll figure it out. You know, and I did. I found the files on my computer and I imported it back in, and it was okay. But but it was just like it starts to you know the more you practice it, the more I think it's starting to become more my normal than my happy normal. Yeah. So it was a really kind of And one of the things that you said, Brenda, that's important to maybe spell out a little bit in more detail is what it sounded like, you know, in your mind, you know, when that happened, then it's like a choice arose in your mind that wouldn't have otherwise been there, like freak out or just do what's next. And even though that that choice might be more greased, easier just to flow into sort of, you know, getting upset. But just because there's a sense of that clear scene in that moment, you know, enough relaxation, enough alertness, the mind notices there are two choices, and it also discerns that that choice is painful and unnecessary. This choice is available and easy, you know, and wholesome. And then you didn't even have to go there. You naturally go there, you know. The only thing that keeps us from going there is not seeing the choice. So if we're so in a sense, seduced or deluded by the charge of this habit to freak out, then we'll, we'll miss it. That choice is always there, but we're not always aware of it. But like you said, when you, we've been practicing more and more, we just start to see these choices that otherwise we wouldn't. Thanks again for sharing that. Other thoughts? Yeah, Alexis. Yeah. 
And it's, it's just like any skill, you know, when we're learning skills, we always start with the really primitive tasks, you know, the obvious ones. But then it gets, the work gets more subtle. And, you know, one of the characteristics of more subtle work is they don't stand out as like, oh, I'm really angry or I'm really lusting. But it's the, more, the emotional tone or the, the feeling tone that sort of catches us is more pervasive. It doesn't actually necessarily even have a particular location. Just a subtle anxiety, a subtle uneasiness, a subtle resistance, a subtle boredom. And it's like you suggested, you know, they, these weren't your words, but it's almost like, well, what is it happening that tells me I'm not perfectly relaxed, perfectly present? You know, so we're, we're kind of asking questions to help the mind tune into the more subtle whatever it is that's off because we have to see it in order to see what's extra, to see what can be let go of. And it's the not seeing it that keeps us in it. So this is really true. You know, the more we practice, it gets harder. Now, the only thing that allows us to do the more subtle work is a more refined balance of the mind, more alertness, interest, more a sense of release because it's more subtle. It takes a more refined attention, presence, to see how the mind is still creating unnecessary suffering. If we don't see that it's creating unnecessary suffering, we can't take the next step. And there are other ways, you know, people, you know, like you can get involved somewhere, you know, that tends to make the more subtle suffering more obvious. You know, commitments, commitment to more formal practice, commitment to service, commitment to transforming, you know, sort of, um, like working with different uh, patterns you might have. So this is another way to amplify the more subtle dukkha that's there. You know, traveling is a way, you know, because you don't know what's going to happen, um, getting married or having a partner. <laughs> These things tend to amplify uh, the healing work we haven't done, the spiritual work we haven't done. You know, becoming a nun or a monk, joining a monastery. There's like classic ways to get involved at Common Ground. It does. It, these things amplify our patterns. As opposed to just <coughs> looking for um, the easy way. Now, there's a lot to be said for looking for the easy way, you know, just keeping things simple in our life, avoiding problems. But when we have a lot of momentum and a lot of confidence in the practice, then, you know, people do things. They sign up for a nine-day retreat or they sign up for a three-month retreat or they decide to sit every day or they decide, you know, not to eat an evening meal for a while or they decide not to gossip anymore, you know. And these are sort of provocative things that will show up tendencies of our mind that we wouldn't otherwise notice. You know, decide to have, to cultivate feelings of loving kindness for difficult people in their lives. You know, and boy, does that show up things. What do you mean, <laughs> loving, kind, loving and kind feelings toward this person? We have a little bit of time left if there are other thoughts for the group. Yeah, Kat. Uh. You know, it, it's sort of, there's a stigma around this word, but the, the word that keeps coming up to me is, is interest in relaxation as, as a form of faith. Form of faith? Form of faith. Yeah. That, you know, I, I know that when things happen in my life, I see myself getting all tense. It's when I forget that everything's in its right place. And that, um, you know, things, things are difficult. There is suffering. Tension, but it, faith that it's not forever. I mean, that's—it's just 
Yeah, but the faith, like, you know, you've been at this for a while. The faith has to come out of experience because we want to have faith that it's okay to relax. But that's not the same as faith. You know, real faith is more like confidence that it's not so much that it's safe to relax, but it's the best way that tensing up, resisting, struggling isn't going to help. So relaxation, trusting, allowing this moment to be the way it is, is the sane response. Yeah, And it is faith. Faith is a central part of the practice. It's just because different religious traditions, spiritual traditions, use the word differently, it can be confusing to use the word faith. Often I'll use confidence. But it really is faith. It's, it's a power. Faith is a power based on what we've learned from life. We have faith. We have confidence. We can even have faith and confidence based on something being reasonable, even though we haven't directly experienced it ourselves. But we've thought about it, and it makes sense. So that's sort of the beginnings of faith, you know? It's like we actually have reflected on it, and this makes sense. It makes enough sense to check it out. You know, that's like an initial confidence or faith. Any last comments before we close for the evening? So let's just leave it here. Take a moment, let go of the words. Maybe take a breath or two together. Seeing a natural space or peace release of the mind. Noticing a natural clarity. And being inspired, happily receiving these ancient instructions from all the men and women who have done the practice before us and done their best to pass it on. We can be grateful. We can even be inspired to do our best to develop this clear, open, released way of being in the world, this kind and wise way of being in the world as a way of taking care of ourselves and taking care of each other, all beings. So may this be so. May we all be causes for peace in the world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.